millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... We're in pursuit of Velasquez with the art critic Laura Cumming and her book The Vanishing Man. Laura Cumming has been the art critic of The Observer since 1999. Previously, she was arts editor of The New Statesman, presenter of Nightwaves on BBC Radio 3 and arts producer at the BBC World Service. Her previous book, A Face to the World on Self-Portraits, received widespread critical acclaim. And Laura's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is The Vanishing Man. And I won't say what the subtitle is, because there's a discussion in this book, Laura, about how one pronounces the name of, of the artist that this book is about. So let's start with that. How do you? <laughs> yes, there is. And it's rather crucial. I've said in the book that this greatest of painters, the Spanish artist Velázquez... Velázquez, Velázquez, etc., uh, is not a name on everyone's lips in this country. And I actually think that this is partly to do with the pronunciation. Uh, I'm not being flippant here. When th- This book is very largely set in the 19th century. It tells the story of a bookseller in the 19th century. And if you look at the spellings of Velázquez, whose work is only just beginning to percolate through from Spain out into the rest of Europe at that time, I think I find something like 10 different spellings of his mm-hmm. name. He's Velasco, Velasqui, Velasco, like a conjugation of a verb almost. These spellings lead to actual errors of all sorts. The book is a story of many um, mistaken identities and um, misjudgments and so on. And this painter, did his name begin with a B or did it begin with a V? And it, all of it is complicated by the fact that Velasquez, who I shall call Velasquez as even I am really, after all this time, not any good at pronouncing his name correctly. And it's pronounced three different ways in Spain, I might add, legitimately. This painter didn't sign his paintings. He didn't date his paintings. There are no titles for his paintings. His work is in an era anyway before titles were the convention. There are so many ways in which it was possible in those days, and still remains so, to confuse a Velasquez. And just to talk about him, I mean, I feel 
even now some degree of shyness about using his name. I prefer to call him by his first name, actually, uh, Diego, uh, because it's easier than creating a solecism as you refer to him. You've already mentioned some reasons for the question I'm going to ask next, but the title, The Vanishing Man, could refer to John Snare, the Victorian bookseller from Reading, who we're going to talk about later. It could refer to the portrait of Charles I, which he becomes obsessed with. And it could refer to Velázquez, because for some of the reasons I said you've already mentioned, but other ones I want to go into, he is mysterious. First of all, as you said, he's not particularly well known over here, even though a lot of people consider him to be, you know, one of the greatest painters. But also he was in this sort of unique situation of being like a court painter. But then the painters just never left Spain really for a long time as well. What, what, What sort of reasons are there for him being so mysterious? Well, there's his character, which we'll come to, which I find um, intensely appealing and intensely mysterious, and the two are linked. But in terms of his art, as you rightly say, he's this genius boy in Seville to begin with. He's only there for a very short time. Uh, His works are so uh, magnificent that even as a teenager, he's painting pieces that we we regard as some of the world's greatest masterpieces. And then he's eager to get out of Seville and get to Madrid. And people come occasionally and buy his paintings. They take them back to Madrid. Eventually, he gets there, probably around about the age of 19. And he paints at that point very fast and very brilliantly a sequence of portraits, one of which gets taken to the palace. And the paint was barely dry. says the account by his father-in-law who wrote the only surviving biography of him written in his own lifetime. And this painting gets to the palace, everybody in the palace is in awe, the king sees it, he's speechless, he commissions him to come and paint the royal person, which he does. And at this point Velasquez very, very rapidly goes from the Seville teenager to a tremendously important member of the court. He becomes court painter within a year. And he never leaves. There are only two recorded trips out of Spain at all, both of them to Rome, and the rest of his life he spends in the palace. Palaces, plural, in fact, because he moves between two or three of them. And he is in charge, eventually, of decorating the palaces, of of organising the paintings on the walls. He becomes the palace curator. He paints all of his pictures in the palace, the greatest of them, in my view, the greatest painting ever made, Las Meninas, the maidservants, shows a room in that palace, a room, in fact, that he has himself organised and arranged and so on and hung the paintings. And he never leaves, and we are able to tell a little bit. There are not, there are not many documents that tell us about Velasquez the man at all, but there are some surviving documents that show us his progression through the palace. So here's the place he first lives, a couple of rooms, then he moves to bigger rooms, he gets a better job, he goes up the ladder of the palace bureaucracy until he eventually, in fact, reaches the top. He lives, his family move into the palace, and so these very, the palace is no longer, the Alcazar is, alas, no longer because it burned down, but its walls in some parts were four feet thick and you see them in the paintings in this very very dense crepuscular light these very shadowy paintings and I feel you can sense this from the confinement of the paintings and of the life within the palace you're right they don't leave he's only known to have made two or three commissions of a tiny number of paintings 110 possibly to 120. People say, rightly, that he measured his genius in symbolfuls. So hardly any work in the span of a career from about 20 to about 60 when he dies. 
and all of it stays there. These are portraits of people who lived in the palace. They are commissioned by the kings and queens. Nobody's going to let them go because they show the royal family and the royal court, the dwarves, entertainers, the maidservants, and so on. So nothing is getting out of those palaces. When he goes to Rome, he does make paintings which were bought, in some cases, by the sitters. But even in Rome, where he painted some of his most tremendous paintings, when he possibly could, he kept them. He didn't sell them. You know, the gardens of the Villa Medici, a magnificent, tiny painting of this place where he's staying. He goes outside into the garden. First and only time he ever goes outside in any of his art, really, is he shows the, the light falling on this beautiful Italian landscape. He brings it home. He doesn't leave it there. He doesn't give it to anyone, sell it to anyone. Even some of the portraits he painted there, he brought back with him. So I think of him very much as a a man who didn't want to let his paintings go. And indeed, the very first painting that made him famous, he bought back when he could. When it was for sale uh, and the owner of it died, he bought it straight back and kept it with him and it was there when he died in the palace. And of course, it, it doesn't help that, you know, he starts off as a, as a painter who becomes a courtier to the king and ends up a courtier to the king who also paints, really, because the, the bureaucracy gets more and more in the way of his actual painting. Yes, I mean, we say that, but of course we don't really know, and it is a heartache for anyone who loves Velasquez and all the painters who've ever written about him, and many have because he is the great painter as painter, that he painted so little. The question is, did he paint so little because he wanted to? Did he paint so little because he was encumbered by all these kind of jobs, you know? At the very end of his life, uh, we see him going to organise all the, the ornaments and decorations and design, effectively, the wedding for the king's youngest child uh, in the Isle of Pheasants, border between Spain and France. And, you know, he's even designing the plates so certainly we know that he had he was an incredibly industrious servant of the court and that he must I think we could probably deduce that he must have had great ambitions to be a courtier and yet we also surely can see from the work that he knew he was a great painter when I think about these lost paintings there are some literally lost paintings and then there are the paintings that he didn't ever paint because he was doing other things I console myself with the simple thought that the paintings that survive are so great. <laughs> we, when we think, you know, are there any other Velasquez in the history of art? Well, no, there are none. And, you know, thousands of other people's paintings could make one of his. He was a slow worker, it is thought, certainly in later years. I also think strongly the evidence seems to me to suggest that he painted for himself. He chose what he wanted to paint. And this would make him really unique as a court painter because that job, you know, it's mug shots, it's uh, marriage portraits, it's diplomacy portraits. You send them out into the world. The king says, I'll have ten of those. You know, even other very great artists who were court painters, they, they really had to hold to a schedule of, uh, of commissions. There are letters, surviving letters, from Philip IV to his confessor, a nun, saying that, you know, I can't get him to do, I can't get him to concentrate on these paintings that I've ordered. I can't get him to finish the portrait of the young Infanta, which I need to send to Prague, uh, because he isn't getting on with it. And even on one of these trips to Rome, he stops off in Milan, where he's supposed to paint a picture for the king, and he actually sidesteps the commissioner and goes to see the Last Supper instead. I think you can say so much from that. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Before we look at some of the paintings in a bit more detail, how did you come to Velasquez? What does it mean to you? 
I always get a bit choked up when I think of this moment because he means everything to me. He changed my life. I think it's not a, an understatement to say this, and I have started the book by saying so, and I mean it from the heart. Um, I loved his paintings anyway. When I was in my 20s, I, I knew them quite well because I grew up in Edinburgh, where there is his magnificent painting, The Old Woman Frying Eggs, which contains that little pan of eggs, and the eggs are resolving from liquid to solid from translucency to whiteness and so on and it's the most magical piece of painting he's probably about 17 or 18 when he made it so I knew that painting and of course I had been to London and where we have amazingly a plethora practically of paintings by Velasquez but I'd never been to Madrid until my father died and he died he was a painter himself and he died very suddenly and very terribly um, from cancer which took his eyesight And I had made this vow that I would never look at anyone's paintings but his ever again. You can see quite clearly I've broken this vow because I'm an art critic now. But I felt that I could honour my father, I suppose, by that vow, impractical and impossible vow. And I had managed to succeed in it for, I think, about nine months, nine, ten months. And I really hadn't looked at anything at all, and I had his paintings around me in the house. And then I went to Madrid, and I went to Madrid in a sort of blissful ignorance because it never really occurred to me that I'd be so tempted by the Prado that I would be able to resist going in. But um, I was there in winter and I I walked around Madrid and Madrid isn't very big, as as you know, and the the more I walked round and round and round the city centre, the more often I passed the Prado. And eventually I kind of allowed myself to, continuing with my vow, honour my father by going in and looking at El Greco, who was his favourite painter. And I thought that if I just followed, I had a map, which as you know has no, they don't generally have images on them, those floor maps. And I thought if I followed the floor map, I would eventually find the El Greco by looking at the ground and I'd just look up and there would be the El Greco and then I could kind of leave with impunity. And instead, this is what happened to me. I was passing the opening of the gallery where this painting hangs and I felt this sort of terrific optical frisson in my peripheral vision and a light, a kind of light that didn't seem a very natural or even it's almost a supernatural light, I suppose it has to it. And I'm afraid I just instantly turned and looked, and there was Las Meninas. And in front of it was standing a crowd of tourists. And I couldn't at the time quite distinguish the real... And this is the greatness, in part, in fraction of the greatness of this painting, is, of course, that its, its reality approaches a kind of mirror reality and a brightness, a sort of optical brightness. And I just looking fleetingly, I saw these people and something that seemed to be more of the room behind them. And then they moved away and I realised that I was looking at a painting. And, of course, the painting is as large as life and so magnificent. And what it shows, as your listeners will know, is a split second. We can say that of all paintings. They all show a split second if they're showing a scene that actually exists. And even those that have imaginary scenes, you know, painting stops time is a kind of cliche we say about it. It stops time. But this painting makes the stopping of time part of its content it seems to me so looking at it you see this gathering of figures on this particular morning perhaps late morning on a day in the palace in 1656 all these years ago and they're standing in a pool of light which is arranged by Velasquez it's coming through shutters that have been specially angled and it falls down upon this little group of figures and they do have this appearance of twinkling and expectancy they're waiting for you there's the painter Velasquez himself behind his easel just stepping out 
There's a dog and a dwarf and a nun and a bodyguard. And right at the back of the painting, this marvellous dark figure, a sort of perfect silhouette, cut-out figure, standing in a doorway filled with light that looks like that. I mean, if you're this way inclined at this moment, when you first see it, you may have the sensation some people have later, which is that that figure is going into the next world. It's taking you on into a sort of everlasting light in the, in the next world. And in my state of mind... All of these things came to me so powerfully that, of course, I immediately began to cry um, because it seemed to be showing you the dead alive in this minute and they were waiting for you and they're still there. They're still there because of this great painting. But most singularly of all, the sensation that the painter gives is that this is all only happening, not just because of his painting, but because of you. You've arrived, you've seen them, you complete the picture, you complete the moment, they see you, you see them. It's a sort of never-ending transmission. You're effectively keeping them alive. And all of this comes to you, really, I, I promise, in a split second when you see this painting. And it goes on feeling like that the longer you stand in front of it. So it never loses that extraordinary, instant, immediate potency. And it made me feel that the dead could be alive in this painting, which is like a chamber of the mind. And I found it very, very intensely comforting. And it sort of broke the, it broke the vow for me, effectively. I was able to go back with some real comfort. Comfort coming from a painting, not from conversations with people, not from looking at photographs of my father or thinking about it, but from this painting by this Spaniard I'd never met. The man who's the figure walking through the, the door, looking to step through the door at the back, it turns out is, is a man, uh, another courtier, um, Jose Nito Velasquez, although it takes a long time before anybody realises that. He also appears in, in you know, numerous um, of Velasquez's paintings, this portrait now can be seen, well, it can't actually because it's closed for renovations as we speak, but it, it should be seen in Apsley House in London. I was going to go and try and see it before we came and only just discovered that it was uh, that it was closed. It's on the cover of the book as well, this portrait. It has a, a rather bizarre story of how it ends up in Apsley House. Tell us that story. And it, this also involves, I was amazed to discover, I didn't realise this, my own favourite painting, which is the Arnolfini portrait, which also happened to be on this same this same journey. So how did the portrait get to uh, to Wellington's house? Well, the portrait, which, as you say, is of his um, the Queen's Chamberlain, Velasquez is the King's Chamberlain, Jose Nieto Velasquez, also Velasquez, is the Queen's Chamberlain. They're opposite numbers and so on in the, in the palace. And who he painted the picture for? Well, I don't know. I just think it's another one he painted for himself. He clearly is absolutely on equal terms with this marvellously intelligent, dark-eyed figure. I think they're great friends. Nobody can, of course, prove that, but I feel that the paintings intimate that. So it's in the palace, and years, decades, and almost two centuries later, the Napoleonic invasion of Spain occurs, and the painting, towards the end of this peninsular war, the painting is stolen. Yeah, I think that's the word for it, stolen, along with a lot of other great works of art from Spanish collections, specifically the Royal Collection, were taken by Joseph Bonaparte back through Spain on this kind of flight that he takes over months and months pursued hotly by the Duke of Wellington and the British Army who are there to kind of, you know, save the Spaniards. And they eventually have their last encounter almost at the border in a town called Vitoria in 1813. And there is a terrible, terrible bloodbath of a battle. 10,000 men were killed in a, very, a few short hours on this hot June day uh, and this terrible campaign between the two of them. 
Joseph Bonaparte flees, leaving behind what's always called his baggage train, which is kind of a strange term for what he's leaving, but basically it is all of his personal carriages, including the one he slept in with a bed in it and so on, and lots of donkeys and lots of backpacks and lots of chests and a lot of trophies of war. And the British army come along and gather things up. And in Bonaparte's personal carriage, they find a cache of paintings. And one of them is the portrait of, of Nieto. And the other, one of the others is the one that you love so much, which is the Arnolfini portrait in the National Gallery here in London. And it is horrifying, <laughs> I think you'll agree, to imagine the damage, the potential damage, the damage, I mean, I think there was some damage. Uh, there were three paintings by Velasquez. These paintings literally are in the blood and mire. I mean, they're just on the ground. They are on the ground. And some of the paintings in there that, that were being stolen were being used as tarpaulins on the backs of, of horses and donkeys. And it's incredible. It just shows you, I think, paintings as objects, these curious sort of vulnerable things that move around the world. They're more resilient than I think we ever really know that they are. I mean, you can, you know, you can wash them without destroying them. You can drop them on a field and abandon them. Bonaparte, incidentally, had a kind of A-list and a B-list, and the A-list featured, you know, the really kind of well-known artists, so it had the Leonardos on it, and they went to Paris, but the ones he wasn't sure about, and the Spanish, you know, the riffraff Spanish, were left behind, which is why there are no paintings by Velasquez in France, and there are several in London. The Duke of Wellington picks them up, takes them back, has crisis of conscience, writes regularly to, for I think two and a half years he wrote to the Spanish government saying, do you want these pictures back? And eventually a diplomat intervenes and says, look, you know, just hang on to them, you saved Spain. It's really a small thing for you to keep these pictures, and, and that is how they ended up at number one London, as it's known, Apsley House on the edge of Hyde Park. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We talked about, obviously, that Velázquez was... Uh, his main occupation was painting portraits of, of Philip IV, that, you know, weird-looking Habsburg king of Spain. And he does, like, he paints portraits of him right through... You know, right through his life. Obviously, Philip outlives Velázquez, but there's, you know, there's, there's clearly a sequence of paintings all through his life. But I think one of the things that obviously demonstrates the humanism of Velázquez is that he, he paints everybody, as you already mentioned, in the palace as well. And I wanted to talk about sort of a couple of the, the portraits that you reproduce in the book of Sebastian de Mora and Francisco Lescano, who are two of the dwarves, and also this actor, the, the actor, the painting that um, Manet saw, went to see and basically said, that's it, I may as well not bother. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, uh, that's the portrait of Pablo de Valladolid and it's in, it's in the Prado and I just think it... Oh. It, it, to me, it's fascinating that Manet, Manet goes on a long and miserable journey on the first direct train from Paris to Madrid. He hated Spanish food. He hated the hotel. He hated everything it about like a, it, a, except the painting. There was a, actually there was a cholera epidemic, so he was quite um, brave to go. But he really went to look at Velázquez, and his greatest of all paintings is not interestingly Las Meninas, which is a, a very kind of unusual view. Um, instead, he goes for Pablo, and this is this fantastic sort of um, coup de théâtre of a painting. The figure of Pablo, this very very. A strong, dark-haired, dark-eyed actor wearing black, and he's making a fantastically sort of extravagant gesture. One hand's holding his all of his sort of strength inside his body, and the other hand's reaching out, very kind of um, thespian gesture. And the figure appears apparently anchored to nothing at all. It just appears in this beautiful kind of tawny light, 
um, as if the only thing that's holding him into the painting is, of course, Velasquez's wonderful brushwork and his fabulous contour outlines and the character's actor's own presence, his own sort of force of personality. I think it's a, a tremendous painting. And as Manet says of the painting, he stands on nothing but air. One of the things about Velasquez is so remarkable is the feeling of circumambient air in his paintings, all of them. There is this sense of light and air moving around figures in rooms that I think you don't see anywhere else in art. So yes, um, this room in the palace, was it a room in the palace, was he even, I don't know where Pablo would have been, though obviously it must have been somewhere in the Alcazar. Certainly the painting hung down the end of a corridor and I love to think of Pablo coming upon himself, a great double moment, a great double act between the painter and his colleague, because Pablo was his colleague. Again, it's a painting like the paintings of dwarves that you mentioned, in which he's just painting his equals. And again, I feel that there is a strong, palpable empathy between the sitter and the painter. Um, you feel they've been in a room talking, you feel they work together, they feel, you feel that they know each other quite well. The portrait of the little dwarf in green, Francisco, you mentioned, is a very, to, was to me, writing the book, was an incredibly controversial test point because... I saw the painting when it came to London in the Great National Gallery show in 2007 and I was amazed. I'd never seen it and really looked at it. Perhaps I'd never really looked at it enough in reality in, in Madrid, but I was amazed by how loving it seemed. This little dwarf, he has a chondroplasia, which is known as short-limbed dwarfism. He's sitting up on a rock, so straight away he's been elevated and he has a very, very gentle expression he's a very gentle character and the brushwork is very gentle so you sense the fusion of the form and the content there that you know this is an expression of his personality just as the painting of Pablo is of his and he's dressed in green and he's holding a little possibly a pack of cards possibly a small notebook it's hard to tell and he's on a day out he's not at court he's away out in the landscape and lovely distant sunny days in the hills one of the only other paintings in which Velasquez shows the outdoor world. And I feel there's a great um, affection between them. Well, the painting was seen by an American critic. I better not say who was because he's terribly well known. <laughs> and he said, what a horrible little psychopath that guy is sitting on that rock. You know, he could be a real little killer, couldn't he? And I was very shocked because that piece came out around the time we were all reviewing the show. And I couldn't believe anybody could think that about him. And this is sometime before I started writing the book. and But I went to look what other people had said just to kind of settle the hash for me. You know, what had people thought? And he was not alone. There were many writers over centuries since the painting was made who had thought that this was a, a vicious painting or a critical painting or a painting that showed what the director of the Prado, even in the 1980s, described as a, an abortion of nature. That was a sort of tremendously pivotal moment for me. I remember when that happened, thinking, right. As soon as I start writing this book about Velasquez, I'm going to go in hard on this one. <laughs> I'm determined that people should cease to think that because in the 17th century and the 18th century, court dwarves were perhaps deformities. They were often described as monsters and deformities. and so on. The outrage of this, with this dwarf, his actual suffering is very well, his condition is, is well known. A chondroplasia has absolutely no correlation whatsoever with the health of the person or the mental health of the person. So the idea that he's kind of homicidal maniac or that, you know, he's abnormally stupid, which is another thing that is often said about the dwarves in the paintings, is an outrage. Nobody has ever 
ever established any such link between these conditions, the condition, the physical condition, and, and any kind of mental state of this sort. So I, I felt that very strongly. And, I, and when you go to the Prada, you'll see that that painting hangs in a room with two other paintings of dwarves, including the wonderful portrait of um, Sebastian Damora, who was a soldier and a diplomat. I mean, you know, he was an extraordinarily important and advanced figure in the royal court. Indeed, he was the he was tutor to the king's eldest son, uh, who would one day have been king had he not died at the age of 16, also a play. And this prince, in his will, leaves his best silver dagger to the dwarf in friendship. You know, I mean, it seems to me that if you look at... Art history is always plagued by the the issues of documentation and what can we establish about art from looking at documents and so on. Well, here is an actual instance of something you can read back into the painting from a document, which is the honour and respect that Velasquez shows towards this figure of the of the dwarf in his red cloak, so defiant and so soldierly. Just to finish off this first part of the show, we've mentioned already a couple of times that Velázquez is, you know, is widely considered, and certainly by yourself, to be among the greatest of all painters. And we've given reasons why, you know, perhaps he's not as well known as other painters are. But why is he considered so good? Can you sum up what's so great about him as a painter? Well, there is what he paints, of course, and that is in its own right so moving and so dignified and so beautiful and for me very Shakespearean I mean we always say Rembrandt's the great you know Shakespeare of art but for me it's Velasquez any day Um, every person who comes before him is painted in soul in character in spirit and in the moment in their life with the knowledge that life is passing which I think is really uh, exceptional Um, and he the way that he paints indicates the moment passing it seems to hold the moment passing so I would say about Las Meninas that it shows you this you know brilliant kind of moment of you know little kids like bright as fireflies in this sunny moment sunspot in in time in the room but it also shows you a world and a group of people who are passing and it holds them there on the edge in the brushwork itself between appearing and disappearing so although you can see and I think this goes to the heart of why painters love his work so much although you can see all of all of Velasquez's brushwork very clearly he's not an impressionist he doesn't kind of blur you know you can see all of these brush strokes in his work you can analyze them very carefully but you can't quite see how these special effects are working on your eye and in last, the case of Las Meninas there's this moment you walk towards the painting and it seems to swither between a very concrete version of reality and an absolutely vanishing depiction so that you don't really know where one figure begins and the other one ends and so on. And as an example in the book of one of the things that had made him distinctive, I've mentioned a painting that was one of many paintings that have very recently turned up. Um, This is a painting found in Kent, here in Kent, in someone's house, hanging over the proverbial fireplace. When they x-rayed this painting that the family was selling because they needed, um, they were in financial difficulty and needed to sell the painting, what they found on the x-ray was something really spectacular and really unique, which is nothing, nothing. When you look at the x-ray of this huge life-size x-ray of the painting, which is a portrait of of a Spanish courtier, a wonderful painting, the master of the hunt, we think he is, and there's nothing, there's no beginning, no ending, no underpainting, no overpainting, no corrections. It's a really unique x-ray for an old master artist. You just don't know how he did it. It's like condensation on a mirror. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Laura Cumming and we're talking about her book The Vanishing Man in Pursuit of Velasquez. And Laura, we've been talking about Velasquez for half an hour, but one portrait we've not really mentioned yet is one at the centre of this book, which is, we could perhaps say, a mythical portrait of Charles I, the, uh, the executed King of England. So what was that painting? Tell us something about the background of that painting. It's not a mythical portrait, I wouldn't say. Perhaps we could say it was a legendary portrait, uh, because it really did exist. It was painted on a late August day in 1623, possibly an early September day, certainly within one week, a very narrow period, in Madrid, in the Alcazar Palace, and it showed Charles I of England when he was still a prince. Charles has arrived on an absolutely disastrous mission with the Duke of Buckingham, who was the King's, King James I's favourite, possibly his lover, who knows, and they arrived, these two, 
disguised um, as the Smiths with sort of false beards and so on, and they arrived in Madrid with the aim of trying to woo the Spanish Infanta, who unite the kingdoms of Britain and Spain. And it's a terrible set of complexities, diplomatic complexities. Neither side really could pull it off. One of them's Catholic, one of them's Protestant, the Pope is involved. Enormous numbers of parties are thrown. The Spanish are horrified because they weren't expecting this visitor. The Duke of Buckingham behaves terribly badly. Everything goes wrong, and above all things, the Spanish Infanta is totally averse to this very small, five foot three he was, uh, Charles I, this small man with a strong Scottish accent and a bit of a a lisp and a stutter and a little bit lame and so on who turns up and she's not impressed with him at all and she certainly never wanted to marry him so the whole thing was a a catastrophe really and it cost a fortune but one great thing as historians have always said that came out of it was the portrait that Charles commissioned from Velasquez he was a lover of art as everybody knows and so was Philip IV and they're young men they're young men and they're all of them all three of these people are very young in their early 20s and Philip has already got this star genius painter from Seville making these marvellous images in in his palace. And Charles wants one too, and they meet for probably a matter of two or three hours, probably not more, and a painting is created, a portrait of Charles. And at this point, it is extremely difficult to know what happened to it. Um, This is the story of John Snare, a Victorian autodidact, a bookseller in Reading, who believes that he finds this painting by chance at an auction at Radley Hall, which is now Radley College and was indeed then also a boys' school, a different boys' school. It was going bust, this boys' school, and all the paintings on the walls were being sold, and this painting, which he came upon, was one of them. About the painting, there are two records of its existence. One in the account written, a biography of Velasquez written by his father-in-law that I mentioned earlier, and the other is the payment made by the British court to Velasquez for the painting. So we know that it existed. And from then on, its whereabouts, its story is a mystery. And uh, certainly John Snare believed he'd found it. Um, I don't want to give away too much of the story of the book, but uh, he's not the only one in history who thought that he had found it. And indeed, the whereabouts of that painting, in the time that I've been writing the book, I've heard three different versions of what became of that painting. So it goes to America eventually with John Snare in the second half of the 19th century, and there are Americans who think that the painting is still in America, and there are Spaniards, great authorities, I must bow to them, who think it never left Spain. I know that the painting that belonged to John Snare isn't in Spain and isn't in America, and that it came back to Britain. Um, what happens to it next is a, is a mystery. Not to me, quite, but... So tell us a bit more about who, who John Snare is. So he's this basically provincial bookseller in Reading. And, of course, because of that, in his quest to sort of prove that this painting he buys is a Velasquez, there's, there's a lot of snobbery involved that this sort of, mm-hmm. sort of counter-jumper is basically questioning gentlemen experts and things. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right, Neil. I mean, in a way, there's a sort of class war theme to the book, um, which not everybody notices, but I felt it kind of keenly because the more he encounters the might of the aristocracy in various places in London, but specifically in Edinburgh, where there's a terrible trial that's going to come to him. He's going to have the painting stolen away from him, effectively. The more I felt that it was a tale of a humble... Well, he calls himself, in the many pamphlets that he wrote... 
and he really did write a lot of pamphlets, and some of them are very long, you know, in defence of his painting, and I suppose ultimately in defence of his feelings for Velasquez. He calls himself a humble provincial tradesman, and that is what he was. He's probably may have been educated, I think, to probably the age of about 12, maybe maximum 13, in, in Reading in the board schools there in the middle of the 19th century. And what he is is a reader. He's employed as a young teenager by his uncle who owns the bookshop and he reads and they have developed a sideline in printing and the more they print the more they read he begins to read about art and there are no places for him to look about look at art at all really the national gallery is only just opened the stately homes of britain are all shut to him he can't see paintings in practically any place at all though in- interestingly wellington opened his house apsley house to the public bless him so many people got to see these three paintings by Velasquez, which were in that collection. So Snare is a kind of goer to auctions, because this is the moment at which a painting changing hands between two wealthy people will appear briefly to the public, because there were public viewing days. And it's thus that he comes across his Velasquez. And bearing in mind that, you know, he's, he's not a particularly well-educated man, but also it goes without saying that at this point it was very, very difficult to see paintings by Velasquez why does he believe that's what it is yes well that's the absolutely key crucial question why does he believe it's what it is well the first reason actually is part of his sort of autodidact pedantry in a way um, which I'm rather affected by if I'm touched by it he's a bit of a royalist um, he could have been a thing about Charles I. This is the lost king. 19th century people thought this was a rather romantic figure. He had his head chopped off, you know, he's the lost king of England and so on. And he had, at that point in his life, been kind of pursuing images of Charles I. He's not alone in this. It was a big vogue at that, that point in the middle of the 19th century. And he's really familiar with images of Charles, um, partly because the British Museum, also blessed the British Museum, which had a massive collection of prints. Uh, you could go there, members of the public could go there, it's a proper democratic organisation, you could go and look at these images. And he reckoned himself, and I think he's right, because I say, following somewhat in his footsteps, I've looked at everything I can look at everywhere, um, he thinks to himself, this picture that is supposed to show Charles I when he's a young prince doesn't look like anything else. And it doesn't, because in the painting he is not as he might appear in early court paintings. He's wearing the wrong clothes. He's got a beard. He's got this Spanish beard. And um, so the Spanish beard is very significant because this is what he quite self-evidently grows in Spain as to become sort of part of the Spanish court and look kind of cool in Spain. Um, so it's a very precise time this image shows. And after 1623, all sorts of people paint Charles, but they never paint him standing like this, posing like this, wearing these kinds of clothes, and so on. And the next person who comes along to paint Charles is Van Dyck, who's, of course, the great coiner of the image of Charles I that we all have in our head, this sort of silken cavalier look. And it certainly doesn't look like a Van Dyck. So there's a little... Um, I've put that rather in a, in a rather kind of specific way to give the sense of revelation that John Snare has when he climbs up this borrowed ladder in Radley Hall to look closely at this uh, rather sort of filthy black rectangle when he famously wets his fingers and cleans the face with his fingers. It isn't a Van Dyke. So what is it? Well, you just said it clearly doesn't look like a Van Dyke, but everybody thinks it is, and that's certainly what it's for sale as. It's certain, yes, in the auction it's it's, it's, um, supposed Van Dyke is what it says, half-length supposed Van Dyke, that's right. And, um, And, you know, he hasn't got any good reason, no good reason to think it's a Velasquez, not at all. But he's got a little hope, and 
that is how all discoveries of paintings start. I mean, this is your rediscoveries, we should say, of paintings start. So and he goes back to the auction with his pal, and you know, and he puts in a bid through a dealer because he's too nervous to to bid himself. And the painting comes in at eight quid, which is a very small amount of money from the point of view of Velasquez, big for John Snare, big, a lot of money. It's about the price of a cart horse in the middle of the 19th century. He's disappointed because he thinks, surely somebody else would have come in. I mean, I mean, come on. This inferiority complex goes to work and he thinks, oh, you know, wish I hadn't bought it now and so on. And he hasn't brought anything to carry it with him home. Um, I think probably think he wouldn't have been able to bid for it, actually. And so he has to go all the way back to Reading on one of these early steam trains, disappointed. And terrible problems occur. He can't get it out of the stately home and the police come while he tries to climb in the window and so on. But eventually he gets it back to his shop in Reading and... He's disappointed until he takes water and washes it properly. And then this kind of glow comes and he sees this rather spectral dissolving brushwork and he thinks, oh, yeah, maybe, this is, maybe this is by someone greater than Van Dyck. I'm Olivia Lang and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So let's talk about how he, how he goes about trying to convince people that it is a Velasquez. He obviously he writes to some experts, some people believe it is, some people believe it isn't. But certainly it's not, like once he starts showing the painting in London, enough people believe that he has found the Velasquez. Don't know, I'm talking about oh, yes. you know, other, yes. you know, the fugitive sort of art critics and experts. Yes, I mean, really, uh, uh, 51 British publications, newspapers, the Times, everybody all come out, you know, with this absolutely thrilled, excited response to the painting, saying, at last, you know, we have a new Velasquez. It's wonderful to see this marvellous painting. Um, one of the people who visits it in Old Bond Street, where he's showing it, is the exiled King of Spain, uh, Suadizon, we should say, um, who grew up in the Alcazar and says, oh, it's a Velasquez, how great. And so, so he has a huge... I mean, really, everybody agrees that this painting is, is by Velasquez and, you know, from Wellington to the, you know, high society to art critics and writers and so on in this sort of um, emerging um, art writing tradition in, in Britain. They are all thrilled with it. He only has two opponents... But they are mighty opponents. And one of them is Sir Edmund Head, the art writer, and the other one is Sir, Sir William Sterling Maxwell, who is a Scot, an MP, an antiquary, a, a tremendous traveller who had been to Madrid, as Snare could never go to Madrid. He would never have been able to afford to go there. And so poor Snare's first enemy, effectively, is this is, is Sterling Maxwell, who is, at this point, the foremost expert on Spanish painting in Britain, and he doesn't think it's... He does not think it's a Velasquez. So this point, his life turns somewhat and he starts to write the pamphlets that I mentioned to defend his painting, but also to produce the backstory, which he must produce to have some... to make sense of how on earth a bookseller in Reading finds it in a boys' boarding school. And it is in this part of his endeavour that I really admire John Snow because he worked himself practically to death to find a sort of trajectory and to, to show how it might have got from A to B, from B to C and so on, how it, how it turns up where it does. And I think examining all his, he becomes a kind of detective and following him and seeing what he detects, I can't fault him. I cannot fault him. I went, I'm, you know, with the, all the resources of EasyJet and the internet, I can't fault him until I fault him. And then I do, right at the end of the book, discover something he didn't know. And what he didn't know is so distressing. I mean, you know, it's, it's a sort of tragedy right at the end of the book because actually his life was ruined by this painting 
and it could have been otherwise, I think. Well, let's talk a little bit about that backstory, how he sort of establishes the pedigree of the painting, where it's come from, how it ended up in Radley Hall, how it ended up in that sale, or at least how he thinks, because that's central to what happens when he takes it on the road, ends up in Edinburgh, showing it in Edinburgh to the public, and then a couple of bailiffs turn up, basically. Yeah, so, it's so take a, us to there. It's an extraordinary scene. It's hanging in a hotel in deepest January in the dark afternoon in 1849 in Edinburgh, in Princess Street, in this hotel. Princess Street, of all places, now a great kind of, you know, shopping thoroughfare. And uh, as you say, these two policemen come and lift it. Well, actually, they're um, sergeant officers, they're called, and um, they come and take it on behalf of a, at that point, unknown client. And they remove it and they drag it along Princess Street in icy conditions, up the mound, if your listeners know this journey, across the mound, across the Royal Mile, and down into the lawn market, which is where the county court is, and they hand it in to the policeman in duty, who's absolutely horrified, there's a testimony, um, court testimony of this, who's horrified because this incredibly famous painter, here is this painting, and they're giving it to him, and he's got to keep it, and he he, um, he gets a, has a box made, and he seals it with his own personal seal, and he promises no one that he will, you know, it won't be touched, it'll be safe, and they stick it in the vaults underneath the court. And poor Snare, who's absolutely devastated by this, is sort of running to keep up and, you know, trying to prevail. And the reason that they have taken it is on the grounds that it is stolen goods. Stolen when? Nobody knows. Stolen how? Nobody asserts. But stolen from whom? We have the answer, which is the Earl of Fife. The Earl of Fife, was a, who's now at this point in the story long since dead, in fact, but he lived in Whitehall. He had a magnificent red Georgian house in Whitehall. And he owned Velasquez's portrait of Charles as a prince painted in 1623, etc. So he owned this painting, or was it this painting, as you will find out from reading the book. Anyway, he believes it's been stolen, or rather his heirs think it has been stolen. So they take it from Snare on the grounds that he must have stolen it. He is able to prove that he didn't steal it, but at the same time, they believe it's theirs. So the painting is impounded, and there comes a Jarndyce versus Jarndyce lawsuit, which goes through ten appeals and several years. And during the course of it, Snare, you won't be at all surprised to hear, Snare goes bankrupt because he can't pay for the Scottish lawyers and so on. And again, it's a very, to me, an extraordinary kind of classist trial because the prosecution for the Earl's side of it, who include all the kind of members of the Scottish aristocracy and the, and the Scottish you know, power brokers, royal academicians in Scotland and so on, they're all involved in, you know, trying to do him down. And um, they refer to him as this little man from the other side of the tweed, you know, who's very like to make off with the painting if we hand it back to him and so on. So he can't get it back. Um, so he goes bankrupt. And at this point, Snare, to, again to refer to your very perceptive remark about the title, becomes the vanishing man because I can't find him. I just couldn't work out where he'd gone. He doesn't seem to be... He's not in Reading. The bankruptcy sale makes no mention of him. He's not there. His wife's about to give birth to their fourth child. He's not in Edinburgh as far as I can find him for a, a minute, just about in the new town, staying in a, a, a one-room flat. And then I, I just lose him and I don't know where he's gone. And it took me some time to find out that he was, in fact, with the painting in New York. And he just basically scarpered. He does actually, we can say, he does, you know, he eventually wins the trial. But by that time, he's already gone. That's sort of irrelevant because he's, he's already scarpered to New York. But just, just stay with the trial for a second. There's this 
like incredible thing that happens during it. That the, the trustees basically are saying that you know he's got this painting, he's stolen the painting. Basically, he's in receipt of this. What everybody should presume is this incredibly valuable old master that somehow he shouldn't have. But the way they actually fight it is by saying it's a forgery. It's worthless. It's worthless. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so they're basically exactly. saying the the Earl of Fife owned this worthless copy of this painting, which he now has. Yes. It's a most tortured and peculiar trial because they actually have to shoot themselves in the foot in order to win. So uh, it has to be valueless and yet incredibly valuable, as you rightly say. And the proceedings of the trial are extraordinary. Their transcript, I found it in the National Library in Scotland, and it is amazing because it's filled with people all knocking the painting on one side and picking it up on the other side. So, so there are lots of people who say so it's complete kind of rubbish, you know, absolutely nothing. And then there are other people saying it's the best Velasquez I've seen in my lifetime. And, and, so, um, and nobody can agree on what a Velasquez really looks like. That's the nub of it. And they can't because there are so few Velasquez paintings in this country at this point. So they're all basing it on you know, a very, very tiny group of paintings. And at this point, you will have noticed in the book, Velasquez is practically flooding the market. So though we know now, through the painstaking scholarship of many Velasquez experts, that he painted practically nothing, a huge number of paintings by Velasquez were supposedly in, coming into Britain. There were 77 in Sir William Sterling Maxwell's Guide to Velasquez. 77, there were only 44 in the Prado. <laughs> so you can see that the question of what a painting looked like in the age before the camera, before there weren't very many prints of paintings either. You couldn't see them in galleries. There were no illustrated catalogues. People could hardly get to Spain. The journey took weeks. The chances of you knowing really well what a Velasquez might look like were limited. And it's in these kind of dark days that the people in this trial are having these, to us now, preposterous squabbles. And yet, even now in our time, people do not agree about what a Raphael looks like, what a Velasquez looks like. Experts clash all the time. In the absence of any forensic or documentary evidence to prove conclusively what a painting might be, we are all susceptible to using the one dependable thing we have, which is judgment and our own two eyes. I'm Greg Jenner. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Snare ends up in New York with the painting. The whole thing starts again, he starts exhibiting it. There's this great scene in the book of the sort of the beginnings of the art scene in Broadway on Broadway in New York. What's fascinating here is that the novelty of the thing is that this is probably or it's certainly sold as probably the first Vasquez ever to have set foot over the Atlantic. Right? You know, the odd thing is that John Snare doesn't really say that. He says in his advertisements and in his pamphlets about it in New York that that it's um, a rare example of this unknown great Spaniard and so on, but he, he, he actually is quite careful never to say it's the first. I, on the other hand, am saying, as far as I can see from the internet and reading and catalogues and so on, I think it is the first vaunted Velasquez in in America, yeah. I mean, America at this point is, you, you rightly say you're looking at the development of the art market on Broadway, and that is a fantastically uh, advanced thing, even in 1851, which is when I think he arrives there. It's gangs of New York, really, you know, it's the Scorsese scene going on around, and yet with this thoroughfare lined with magnificent houses and wonderful new shops and galleries and so on. Um, so it's a very brilliant and, and fascinating period of New York's history, it seems to me, because you do have actual 
actual cowboys and you do have actual puffed French dealers all kind of mingling in, in, the, in the streets of Manhattan. Um, wonderful time. And he lives on Broadway. He lives on Broadway for the rest of his life. He moves gradually from his first job where he's kind of hanging out at a, the Stuyvesant Institute, which is a sort of um, a place where you know workers had lectures and pictures were shown and photography in its first daguerreotypes were very first shown in New York and so on and he gets a kind of job, he gets a foothold in there as a, a sort of caretaker and then he elevates himself to curator and, and so on and um, eventually he, an Egyptian, a collection of Egyptian artefacts arrives and is shown there. Now these priceless and magnificent Egyptian jewels uh, are on show permanently at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, he's the first person to look after them and, uh, and so on. And There's a marvellous description, I believe it's by Mark Twain. I haven't conclusively been able to prove that, but um, Twain had the a... Buffalo the, bu- yes, the Buffalo newspaper, the Buffalo Herald, and he's, he's, uh, he's writing... Twain was a, uh, writing for this paper at this time um, a sort of weekly column showing a, a picture from from Metropolis, uh, from New York. And he writes, he writes a, a, a wonderful account of going to see the painting, which Snare manages to smuggle into absolutely everywhere. You know, he's always showing it somewhere in this building. You know. And he goes and describes the painting, which he found tremendous. And I have a great faith in Mark Twain. He's a linchpin for me in the views I have about what this picture might have been. And he also writes about Snare. He's the first person I have come across who actually writes produces a marvellous portrait of Snare, who is at this stage, I think, clearly going mad. We've already said that we're not going to give away the, the final revelations of the book that happen all happen after Snare is long dead, basically. But let's talk. About, let's finish off talking about the end of Snare. So he's basically he's gone to New York. He's left. You know, he's left his life in in Reading. He's left his wife and four children. He never comes back. Never sees her again. How does he end up? Well, he ends up doing quite well for a while, um, and then the Civil War comes, and he just about manages to eke his living through that, and then he gets a job, eventually being a book a bookseller's runner, in a way, is what he is. And there's a little account in the New York Times um, of somebody who remembered him when they were all trying to find him, some years after he probably had died, of this man this, in, you know, wearing a heavy plaid and a top hat, running Union Station, and sorry, Grand Central Station to Broadway and back, um, taking books back and forth between Scribner and Son, who have published this book very kindly in New York, and the booksellers on the streets and, and so on. And then I think he starts to, he gets old and he just about kind of keeps surviving. And then um, late in life, when I think he's in his 70s, a man who is writing the first account of Spanish art in in, in America asks if he can come and see him and visit the painting and so on. And he won't. He won't let him come. And I think at that point he has... He feels that nobody values his painting properly and he's become, I think, quite crazed a bit and defensive and so on. And he, and he won't let anybody see it anymore and he says it's caused too much pain to him. And he just fades away. And since the book was published, I thought he was a John Doe. I mean, I just thought he'd ended up somewhere and I didn't know where he'd ended up. But since the book was published... I've managed, <laughs> through that amazing Mormon database, I found where his remains are, and he's in a cemetery in Brooklyn. Um, fashionable now, but obviously not then. And he certainly dies of neglect. The, the death certificate says that he dies of neglect and old age and carried off by pneumonia in the worst 
winter that Manhattan had seen in that century, alone at the top of a floor seven of a sort of cold water tenement on Broadway. And just very, very quickly to finish off, the paperback, which is out this week as we're recording this at the beginning of January, has a little afterword, wherein after, again, after the book has been published, you've been able to see uh, like a, a cache of papers, basically, of letters, of snares. So what what more does that sort of add to your idea of his character, being able to see those, see the actual letters of his? It's an excellent question. It came, I got, I got letters from people who thought they had the picture. So, and I used to kind of get to the point where I would dread them coming, you know, I'd open them and they would say, well, and I think, oh no, you know, because in a way, I don't know whether people listening to this podcast would understand it. That painting, and there are two paintings in the story, so that's my biggest hint to you about what's really going on in the book. Um, that painting disappears, and lots of people have, lots of people, some people have written to me saying that they've got it or so on, and none of the candidates fit the bill at all. And I have really looked hard. But then I received a letter from a man who said he thought I, I might be interested in something he had, and would I like to come to his house in Putney? And I was about to think, oh no, no way am I going to, you know, when I read who the letter was from, and it was from a man called Charles Seabag Montefiore, who is of the Seabag Montefiores, who is a, an antiquary himself and a director of the National Gallery, and he is a collector of primary sources that relate to the history of British collectors. People from all around the world go to this house in Putney, including all the scholars at the National Gallery and so on. And so I went, and I didn't really know what it was I was going to see, but this sitting on this table was a beautiful artefact. It's a book handmade by John Snare with an exquisite watercolour cover and some little drawings inside it. He was a considerable draftsman himself, which alone, well, it's clearly very poignant to me because I knew that at the end of his life he would have liked to have been an artist. Um, so I found a certificate of his attempts at night school to learn engraving. Um, in fact, he gets a distinction. And this is his letter book. And it's in his hand. I thought to begin with it probably wasn't his hand. You know, maybe he had some kind of clerk copy out all these letters. Letters to people, letters from him, etc. And they're all about the painting. And the thing that this book tells me very clearly is that he was on the straight and narrow. He really was. Because at certain times in the whole of this story, I wondered if he was kind of duping everybody and, you know, if he was a complete con man and, you know, he's showing it in old Bond Street, you have to pay a shilling to see it, you know, I mean, maybe it's a fraud, or, you know, could it be real, could it be, you know, and so on. And, of course, the credibility of the painting somewhat depended for me on the credibility of John Snare. So was he really truthful? Was he sincere? And the book so abundantly shows the sincerity of the man and his deep researches and his um, endless attempts to, to get to the heart of the matter. And even he at times doubts the painting and, you know, so all of that. And then I suppose it proves one thing which I had wondered all along, which was the state of his mind as all of these shocks and bankruptcies and departures and so what what was the state of his mind and I think that the handwriting in the book if we can say that handwriting in any way expresses our state of mind it certainly starts with a beautiful kind of Victorian probity you know the proper you know copper plate upright marvellous meticulous very elegant hand uh, very educated looking given that he was uneducated as he describes himself and then towards the end of the book, it is really beginning to disintegrate and I think you can see his desperation causing a collapse so it moved me very much and what it did for me is to prove I think that some of the surmises I had weren't so wide of the mark I've been talking to Laura Cumming we've been talking about her book The Vanishing Man In Pursuit of Velasquez which is just out now in paperback from Vintage Books Laura thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it. Well thank you very much for having me
You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.